but we're going to wrap up this series. So far, as we've talked about the church, this teaching series, we, we've talked about the history of the church. Like, like when did the church begin? What, what did it look like? How did it fragment into so many different groups? And we talked about that. We exposed the air of landmark theology. Um, we talked about two out of the three things that have made Baptists distinct when they pulled away from the state church in the early 1600s and separated into their own denomination. And two of those three things that we talked about, meaningful membership and credo baptism or believers baptism. And so tonight we're going to wrap it up by discussing that third historic distinctive of Baptist, and that is congregationalism. Let me start by saying this. I've got some preface statements. Um, There are many groups of people that claim to be the best representative of the New Testament church. When I say New Testament church, I'm talking about the church we see in the New Testament. There are groups that have different doctrines, different beliefs, different practices, different traditions, but yet still claim to be following the biblical pattern as closely as possible as they can. Well, I don't say what I'm about to say in a mean or unloving way. Just the truth of the matter is this, not all of them can be equally right. And we're going to discuss that tonight. On the other hand, let me say this. There are different denominations made up of genuinely converted, saved people. They have different views on what church should look like and how it should function in some ways. And it's possible, it's possible to disagree on how a church should be organized. We call it church polity and still go to heaven. I hope that's not a profound truth to you. You don't have to have a particular view of church government to be saved. If you believe that, then kindly, I must say, you're a heretic. Because it's believing the gospel alone that saves you and takes away your sins. But just because the gospel is most important, and it is, doesn't mean that what you believe about church polity doesn't matter at all. It matters whether or not you believe in a Presbyterian church government or an Episcopalian church government or a Baptist church government. What you believe about church government doesn't save you. Can I get an amen just to make sure we we believe salvation's by grace alone? Okay. But just because something may not be essential to becoming a Christian doesn't mean it isn't important in finding the most biblical way to live as a Christian and to function as a congregation. Jesus spent most of his ministry telling us how to be saved, but he also spent time talking about what the local community of his people would look like. And if Jesus talked about it and even had his apostles write about it, it should be important to us. Like I just said, there are many different views on how a church should be ran. It's called polity. It's called government. And here's the ultimate question of church government. Who has authority in the church and where does it come from? Okay, there are two schools of thought other than the Baptist school of thought, generally speaking, when it comes to church polity. 
Here they are. Number one, there's the rule of a few. The rule of a few. Okay, in the Presbyterian form of church government, groups of ruling elders preside over churches. For instance, when someone is disciplined, the elders handle this without the say of the congregation. So elders carry all the authority, not the congregation. That's rule of a few. But then there's rule of one. That's the Episcopal church government. Anglicans and and, and Methodists, for instance. They, They put one man in charge of an area who they would call the bishop. In the Anglican tradition, the bishop presides over rectors and the rectors are in charge of the individual congregations. In the Roman church, there's an extended hierarchy that includes cardinals and then, of course, the pope. In the Baptist world, there is an abuse of pastoral authority. And the church is ran by one man in some Baptist churches. That church doesn't call him a bishop and it doesn't call him a pope. They wouldn't dare say that. But he still functions like one. And that's not biblical. Biblical Baptists have historically separated from the Roman church and eventually from the state church for these reasons. Study the history. They believe that the church should not be ran by the state. The church should not be ran by the Pope. Historically, here's what Baptists believe. Here's what I believe best fits the pattern of the New Testament. Here it is. Baptist church government is pastor-led and congregational ruled. I'm going to say this several times because I just don't want to be misunderstood, especially by those that might not have been around our church for a long time, or might not be part of the Baptist tradition for very long. I want you to be clear that though I'm teaching on Baptist church government without apology because I, I pastor a Baptist church. If I wanted to pastor a different church with a different style of government, I would leave here and go do that. So that's why I'm here. I, I'm not apologizing for that. I just want to be clear that I do think that you can disagree with me on these things and still meet me in heaven one day for all eternity. Okay, Baptist church government is, is not a d- democracy because churches are led by pastors. It's not a monarchy Because each church member still has responsibility. So the leader has kind of an authority and the church has kind of an authority. This is Jesus's program for his churches as best as we can tell from the New Testament. The members have responsibility and the pastors have responsibility. So I want to explain both in my sermon tonight. First of all, the church is congregational ruled. Now here's the golden question. What does that mean? What authority or rule does Jesus give to a congregation, a local assembly? Well, Matthew 18 speaks to this a little bit when he talks about they have the authority to receive and release church members. Matthew 18, 15, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And I just want to shout that from the rooftops right there. Do you guys get, do you get the, do you get the thrust of this? If there's a brother that is in sin and even that sin involves you directly, you don't go to the pastor first. Like I'm not the principal. You don't just get to send him to the principal's office. I'll say it with using slang. I ain't got time for that. He's putting the responsibility on the congregation. 
You try to deal with this between you and your brother privately. Don't even bring a friend with you. That's out of order. Just go face up. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. That is the goal. So if you're, if you're addressing somebody one-on-one, guess what? The, the burden is on us to address them in a way that will give them the most potential to receive it. Are you hearing me? That has to do with timing. That has to do with tone. That has to do with your relationship with that person. Whether or not you are the candidate to go do that or not. Um, man, so many things go into that I could preach, but that's not the point. But if he will not hear thee, here's step two, then take with thee one or two more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So that's just wisdom, practical wisdom. And if that doesn't work, tell it unto the next word. Uh, come on, help me. Tell it to the, the congregation. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a public. What does that mean? It means that if he will not receive the word of a friend, he will not receive the word of two or three friends, and he will not receive the admonition, instruction, and accountability of an entire congregation that at some point he's committed himself or herself to, then the only conclusion the church has to come to is this person has never been converted in the first place. Now, they can't be the ultimate judge of that. But if through a long period and a gracious space of time and trying to intervene in this sinner's life, that sinner continues to neglect and continues to neglect and continues to neglect and live unrepentantly in sin, then a congregation at some point for the sake of of preserving holiness, the congregation at some point has to say they just don't show fruits of repentance. And if you want to be a church member, the Bible teaches you got to be saved. And if we deem that there's just no fruits of repentance and Jesus teaches that person has to be released from the congregation. I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the authority. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my father, which is in heaven, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them. Jesus puts his seal of approval on the authority of a local New Testament church. So, so, so it's very clear that God does not mediate decisions to bind and loose church members by communicating to a pastor or a pope who then tells the congregation what God has said. You, you see that in the text? That's nowhere to be found. It's the congregation that holds the keys. It's a congregation that bears that authority. So you don't get to put that completely on me. And certainly I'm part of the church, so I don't get to put that completely on you. It's congregationalism. Here's another example of the church's authority when it comes to receiving and releasing members. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. What is that? Sexual immorality. And, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles... Now, it gets really bad, really crude, but this is what was happening in this church. That one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up. And you've not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done 
so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. What is Paul pointing out? He's saying, listen, church, you've been given the authority to deal with sin in your congregation and you're not. You're not even mourning about it. And Paul says, that's not good. That's not good. Paul did not say, talk to a council. Pastors, what are you doing? Report this to the, the state that this, no, he says the process of receiving and releasing members It ends with the whole church making the decision. Do you see this church? By implication, if the congregation has the authority, which we just clearly saw, to release members from the church, it also has the authority to receive members into the congregation. How's that played out? That's where Matthew 28 comes in. Verse 18. And Jesus came. And spake unto them, saying, All power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What's the next word out loud? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So follow this logic. The church is given the authority to baptize believers. We've already studied in this series of messages how baptism is the gateway to church membership. Meaningful members of a church are saved, baptized believers. So then because the church has the authority to baptize, they have the authority to receive members into their local congregation. The congregation is responsible to affirm to the best of their ability that somebody's confession of the gospel is true. The congregation is the the judge and jury on who gets let in to the church. They, they get to deem whether this candidate for membership has agreed to the core beliefs of the church and, and whether they're going to be willing to contribute to their part of committing to the church. If, if they all say, yes, yes, they're saved. We affirm they believe the gospel. Then they baptize that believer and welcome them into the church family. So just like members shouldn't be released by the single decision of a pastor or, or, or a group of elders, members shouldn't be received by the authority of one person or a staff of pastors. We'll talk about how we're going to address that in our church in a few minutes. Another area of authority that the congregation has is when it comes to receiving or releasing teachers or pastors in our case. This principle is seen in Galatians 1. Check this out. This is, this is uh, Paul talking about the fact that they should have released some false teachers from their church. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. He's not addressing pastors. He's addressing congregations. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Which is not another But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. And we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Listen, Paul is speaking here to the congregation, not the leaders. 
in Galatia. And Paul's saying he's astonished that they, the members, are turning to false gospel teachers. The congregation is rebuked for not releasing these teachers from influencing the church. By the way, this is why our church voted before hiring me in 2020, before before letting me be the lead pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church. Did you know that decision wasn't the previous pastor's decision to make? It wasn't the deacon's decision to make. They could suggest, but it wasn't their ultimate decision. The congregation bears the authority to receive and release pastors. I'm very thankful for how congregational my dad was in the pastoral transition. Two separate votes. One to even entertain the thought of me being a co-pastor. And I passed that one. We had two no votes. I'm going to find who that was. They probably left by now. And then he had another vote. And it was 100%. And I'm thankful that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't just my dad saying, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, that's exactly how Brother Landis did it too. It was a suggestion made. He was put before the church. I know because I was, sit, I was sitting in my dad's office with my mom and dad and my brother. I don't know if, yeah, my sister was alive. I think she was eight or so. Um, and I just didn't really, she was out of sight, out of mind to me at that time. Um, but we were all in the office and uh, we were waiting for what the church's vote would be in the old building. So I remember, like, that is the church's authority. Some people, and that's, it's really, we got to keep that in mind. It's not like I'm hoping to like give you permission to fire me anytime you want. Um, though you, but you need to know that like, I am accountable to this congregation. I am. I don't just get to like run and do whatever I want and teach whatever I want. And I, I would give you permission at any time. If you hear another gospel being preached from any pastor that we pay, that, that you would get with the deacons. And respectfully confront that. Now I'm not talking about if you don't like a song that I choose. Like you need to get over that. But I'm talking about another gospel. If you, Paul was addressing another gospel. The things that preachers fight about these days and churches fight about have nothing to do with the gospel sometimes. Talk about another gospel. If you hear that, you, you ought to confront that. Hopefully with, the, with, with, with not just firing somebody but saying, hey, can, can we make sure we're on the same page with this? But man, if, if I'm preaching another gospel, that needs to be confronted. By the way, you're going to notice that when it comes to the rule of the congregation, the Bible doesn't really speak specifically to the congregation ruling over every decision made in the church. In other words, we don't see a pattern in the New Testament of church-wide votes on things that are operational in nature. Okay, it's mainly things that are spiritual in nature. When it comes to the operational side of the ministry... There's actually a lot of latitude given in Scripture for how a church should function. So, so the way we function operationally, I think this is good for some of our newer members to know. The way we function operationally in our church is that the congregation votes on a list of nominated trustees from inside our congregation. Those trustees then serve a two-year term in which they meet every month to get a thorough report of the income and our expenditures, as well as approve the, the budget. And, and, and those, those are meetings that have actual formal minutes recorded, uh, formal voting going on to, to, uh, to approve um, the, the, the presented financial report that, that Farron gives to the guys. And, uh, and then those trustees vote on, on, on behalf of the church um, for major financial purchases that are outside of, of the, the proposed budget that's already been 
voted on. But you won't find our procedures in Scripture, per se. We have to use wisdom within the parameters of Scripture to practically operate the ministry and then kind of just settle on a system that we think is best for us. But listen, other churches may apply congregationalism differently for operational purposes. Some may use their deacons for those purposes. Some may have committees of lay people, like a ton of committees everywhere for those purposes. And that's fine. Some may even take church-wide votes for everything they do. In fact, uh, Pastor Mike, when he went up to Garden City, um, he inherited a, a really small church, so they're able to do this um, more practically. But he, he inherited a church that they vote on about everything. And, and so it, it's just the larger church gets, the less you can do that. But, but it's up to each autonomous church to operate practically as they see fit. And the scripture gives us a lot of latitude in those areas. But, but the main way in which we see congregational authority in scripture is how it relates to receiving and releasing members as well as receiving and releasing pastors. That's the congregation's role in church government. But then there's the pastor's role. So, so what, do you, what can you expect biblically from me? I'd say it this way, the church is pastor-led. So the church is congregational ruled and the church is pastor led. I'll I'll just show you two portions of scripture. I could could show you more. Here's two portions of scripture that give me authority on that. Hebrews 13. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. That they may do it with joy not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Obey them. Study the context of Hebrews 13. It's talking about the spiritual leaders that God's placed in your life. Acts chapter 20 verse 20. And by the way, if anybody sees that and be like, man, I got to obey the pastor and everything he says, just understand that it's never to the expense of following your God-given conscience. Uh, It's never when I lead you. The apostle Paul put it this way, follow me as I follow Christ. And so this is not some pastoral like abuse type thing where you obey what I say, bless God. Like that, that's wrong. That's, that's not right. That's so don't let the word obey scare you, but obey really isn't a bad word. It's not a bad word. There's such thing as submission and God has put submission in every institution that he created. Think about the family. God, did he not say that the wife submits to the husband and the children submit to the parents? He put submission in the workplace. Ephesians six. That, 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 that servants or employees ought to submit to their masters or their employers. And so the same concept is in the church. That, that there ought to be submission to spiritual leaders that the congregation approves. You ought to be able to say, I can only approve somebody I'm willing to submit to. Acts chapter 20. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, talking to a church and all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers to Feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So I'm called as an overseer to the church. Now, earlier we read passages that give authority to the whole congregation. These verses make it clear that the pastors have authority too. And some people struggle with that. Like, how's that possible for both to have authority? Here's what we have to understand, okay? We have different kinds of authority. I'd say it this way. While each church possesses authority, pastors lead in the use of that authority. Wisely, humbly, gently, even boldly, but they lead. Pastors guide the church. They do this primarily by teaching the Bible. That's why Paul tells Timothy that pastors must be able to be teachers in 1 Timothy 3.2. Teachers. That's a a qualification, a requirement of pastors. They, They must be gifted to teach. 
In Ephesians 4, 11, 12, Paul says that church leaders are gifts to the church. He says they exist for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I want to make a point here. The larger a church becomes, the more qualified pastors or elders it needs to perform this ministry of oversight, of feeding and leading and perfecting the saints. In a church of over 400 people like Ours, there's no way that I could be the only qualified pastor that oversees and gives spiritual guidance to all the members. That's why we hire a pastoral staff. Let me talk to you about my philosophy on this, which I think is highly biblical and I'm going to show you. I call my pastoral philosophy pastoring in the plural. I borrow that from from a book on on a plurality of elders that I read. Pastoring in the plural. When the New Testament describes actual elders functioning in churches... It speaks about elders in the plural. I want to scan a a few verses. I want you to notice multiple elders led each individual church. I'm only given a few. There's there's twice as many as I'm going to give you. Acts 15 verse 4. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders. And they declared all things that God had done with them. Acts 20, 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders... Of the church. Philippians 1 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, interchangeable with pastors or elders, and deacons. 1 Peter 5 1. The elders, which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also protect care of the glory that should be revealed. James 5 14. Is any sick among you, church? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do you see a pattern? Now, if you want to take the S out of there, you can, but it's in the word. It's like an historical document. Again and again, we find elders plural in each church singular. It's like each church had its own pastoral squad. Why is that important? Several reasons. Number one, shared labor Leads to sustainable ministry. In smaller churches, you don't need a plurality of elders. As a church grows, you need a plurality of elders or else the one elder is going to die. Multiple pastors saves a lead pastor from exhaustion and burnout. Plain and simple. It's a practical reason. Just study the book of Exodus when Moses thought he could do everything by himself. And then was it his father-in-law? Was it Jetha? What, What was his name? Jeffro, Jeffra, Jetson, Justin, who was it? Justin, you like that one? I think it's Justin. He said, Moses, why are you doing this all by yourself? A principle was established there. Acts chapter six, we see that as well. Plurality of pastors, number two, combines different talents, gifts, and personalities. That is a benefit to the congregation. Because some of you like to listen to Pastor David preach. And some of you like Pastor Tanner. And some of you like me. And you can, get, you can get something from every single one of our personalities. David is more equipped to lead in certain areas than I am. Tanner is more equipped right now to lead in certain areas than I am. Eli and Sid, they all have different talents that I don't have. And our church is blessed by the plurality of personalities. The plurality of gifts. That doesn't mean we're not in unity. We are extremely in unity. But we still let each other be unique in how God made us. 
Number three, plurality of pastors allows the pastors to pastor each other. Have you ever thought about who's my pastor? Like, I need one. I'm a mess. My pastors are the men that sit with me at Tuesday, 1 o'clock. Wednesday, 1 o'clock right now. They're the pastors that sit around the table in the conference room with me once a week. And you know, you know how, how, how we typically start our staff meeting? By confessing our sin. Don't we? We, we? we pray for each other. We say, hey, what is stressing you out right now? Like it's on the agenda of our staff meeting. It's not like, what's your prayer request? Now, there's specific ways in which I'd lead that. We give each other opportunity to pastor each other. These guys pastor me. But it even goes deeper than that. Here's the fourth reason why, why plurality of pastors is necessary. Be, because pastoring in the plural limits the temptation to abuse power. Men are power hungry. And, and, and if, if, if it was every decision was, was up to me, and, I, and I, I, I didn't include anybody else in the decisions... I was the only decision maker around here. That would go to my head fast. No, it would. And, and I guarantee you, in my flesh, I would abuse that power. And so by having other qualified elders around the table, soliciting their feedback and letting them speak into my life on a regular basis, which I hope I never lose that spirit with them. By letting that happen... It limits my temptation as the lead pastor to wield authority in the congregation in an unhealthy and abusive way. And I have seen, I've preached in, I've sung in, I've ministered in churches where the pastor is a bully. And every pastor with too much power has a tendency to be a bully. And by surrounding myself with men that aren't just like my guinea pigs, that aren't just my hustlers, that aren't just my gopher boys, but they're qualified first Timothy three qualified pastors and looking at them that way, that keeps me on ground level. And I'm not saying sometimes I don't get in my head. I'm not saying sometimes I'm not have a bully spirit. I'm not perfect. I don't, but this limits that temptation to be clear. I do think there's wisdom in having a lead pastor position. That's just practical. A man who the church has selected to be the primary teaching and preaching pastor as well, who's just the person leading from up front. And with a church and staff our size, like in the school and in the pastor, there needs to be a specific person who leads the employees of the church. I think you'd agree with that. But that doesn't mean that the church should see the lead pastor as the only one who has the authority of God in that congregation. Every pastor or elder on our team has been called by God and them and their wives meet the requirement for a biblical pastor. Our, our pastors are, 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 uh, on staff are not just figureheads to do what, what I don't have time to do. They're men of God. Been trusted to give oversight to various areas of, of our congregation and ministry that I can't ad- give adequate oversight due to my limitations as one man. So my plea to you tonight is that you'll see these men as God-given shepherds to you and your family just like I am. 
When they preach, they're giving pastoral oversight. When they lead, they're giving pastoral oversight. When they disciple, they're giving pastoral oversight. When they visit you in the hospital or or conduct a funeral or officiate a wedding, they're giving pastoral oversight. When they have to give accountability to a ministry leader on my behalf, they're giving pastoral oversight. And they're not second string to me. You're not getting the JV team if they visit you in the hospital. You're not getting the JV team if, if, if I'm out of town and they've got to stand in for something. You're not getting the JV team on Sunday morning when Tanner preaches. We don't view him as a J, the JV squad is going to be in, in, the, in the pulpit. Eli will be leading worship and Tanner will be preaching and David will be preaching. And, and we can't wait till the varsity player gets back. That's carnal. That's absolutely carnal. We're here for the word. We're not here for Apollos and Cephas and Peter and Paul. We're here for the word. These men are pastors. They're on different levels of development in their leadership and their maturation and their teaching and administration abilities. And they all have different strengths and weaknesses, but they're all to be revered and trusted and followed just like the lead pastor would be. So I'm just telling you, the only, to view me as the only one who has God-given pastoral authority in our church is a big mistake. It's unsustainable. And I believe it's a more narrow form of church leadership than the New Testament describes for us. Is that all right? With all that being said, when it comes to church polity as Baptist, we think the Bible teaches that the congregation rules while the pastors lead. Kindly, kindly. Not arrogantly, kindly, we choose to reject the Episcopalian rule of one and the Presbyterian rule of a few. Now, you may be tempted, as I close, to think that, wow, this message was just not necessary. I mean, church polity, is it really that big of a deal? It is a big deal. Because that's everything to do with church authority. It means no man or organization can tell the church what to do. Every church is autonomous. You study our Baptist forefathers. They made a courageous separation because they were under the conviction the Pope is not our authority and the state is not our authority. Jesus is the head and he's given the keys of authority to the church. You may also think church polity is not practical. Well, let me close with some practical takeaways so you know it is. Number one, have relationship with others that are vulnerable, vulnerable enough that you can be called out for sin. Now, that's not a very pleasant thing. But we read it, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. If the congregation has the authority to and, and should be confronting sin among its members... Then, then you need to have relationship with others that are close enough to where you can be called out for sin. It's not just the pastor's job to watch out for you spiritually. Make sure other members have the opportunity to speak into your life. Number two, be present at the members' meetings. This is really practical. Guess what? I got fired up when I became pastor. We're going to have quarterly meetings. And I'm going to promote them four weeks out. Members meetings in four weeks. Can't wait to see you there. And I looked after that year, the lowest attended Sunday nights of the year. I am not exaggerating. Members meetings. 
the lowest attended ones. So I went to, I went to the goat, my dad. I said, what am I to do about this? Preach a scathing message on members meetings? Please tell me I can. And he gave me profound wisdom. Just stop announcing them. I said, that's brilliant. And I didn't announce them and you came and you had to hear that it was a members meeting and you're like, ooh. He duped us. Well, that's what you get for duping me. In all seriousness, members meetings aren't really boring add-ons. They're part of how the church is the church. If the congregation has authority, then you need to be informed. See, if, if you ask most Baptists if they believe in a pope or cardinals, they'd quickly say no, like loudly say no. But some of those same Baptists are not active in taking ownership of the future of the church. We don't have popes, we don't have cardinals, we have you. We have you. So be the church. Number three, study doctrine. Remember the churches of Galatia got rebuked because they were giving in to false teachers and allowing false teachers to come in. The the pastors of these churches didn't get rebuked. The members got rebuked. Question, do you study doctrine enough and know it well enough to be able to identify false teaching when you hear it? How are you going to do your part of protecting the church from false teaching if you don't know how to spot it when it comes? So when we take time to preach doctrine, you're like, oh boy, how's this going to help me on Monday? Oh, it can help you. It can help you rule this church and protect and guard this church. All right, here's here's the most practical thing we'll take away and we'll be done. Take part in receiving new members. All right, so as it stands right now, our system for receiving members is basically Presbyterian. That's just how it is. The elders conduct a membership interview. We assess a person's understanding of the gospel. We investigate the validity of their baptism if necessary. We teach in the core doctrines and solicit agreement on those doctrines by the signing of a church covenant. If, and then we announce they're coming into membership and everybody's like, "Woo!" Well, if you think about it, the congregation doesn't have a lot of formal say or authority in the receiving of new members into our church. It would never be okay for me to just get up one Wednesday and say, I'm kicking this person out of our church. I would hope you'd stand up and say, what, what, what? You ain't the Pope. But let's just be honest, that's kind of what we're doing when we receive members. Now, I know you trust us. And I know our our process is incredibly thorough, like very thorough, because we're very convicted about meaningful membership. And so you trust us, and it's not your fault. But I think we need to be more congregational in receiving members. Not in a weird way or an awkward way, but a more formal way. So, so, so what I'm proposing is that, we, is that the pastors still conduct a membership interview and assess this person's understanding of the gospel, investigate their baptism, teach them core doctrines, have them agree to the church covenant. But once they get through that process, I, I'm going to ask Pastor David to bring them before the church and, and to uh, recite their salvation testimony to you um, on a Sunday night so that you can hear of their understanding of the gospel. And then what we'll do is we'll have our church clerk ready with a pen in hand and we'll receive a motion. This isn't unheard of in Baptist churches. Maybe this Baptist church has done it in the past. I would not know those things. 
But we're going to receive a motion and a second from the floor to receive the members into the church, which will be followed by, by a church-wide vote. Just a yes or no vote signified by the raising of your hand. And we'll record that as, as the church saying, yes, this is a believer. Yes, they understand the gospel. Yes, we welcome them into our congregation. Now, that might feel like a formality to some of you and unnecessary But I believe it's based on biblical principle. If the church is going to vote to release members, and the church should, it should also have the authority to receive members. The authority isn't given to the pastor alone. Now, do I expect there to be any no votes when we present a saved, baptized candidate for membership? No, I don't. Why? Because of the thorough system we go through in in our membership interviews. And because our church has traditionally welcomed new members with open arms. I've never heard, boo. I mean, maybe when Nathan Champion came into uh, membership, but other than that, I haven't heard any boos. Yeah. If it wasn't for his wife and his girls, wouldn't have let him in. But in all seriousness, I think we can better have a clear conscience because I think we're we're, we're reflecting the New Testament pattern of church governance, in my opinion. Now, Voting somebody into the membership of a church, like if we do that, we make that step. We can't just go like this, ooh, yeah, we're Congregationalists now. We're real Baptist. That's only where Congregationalism begins. When you say, yes, this person's a believer, and yes, we recognize that and affirm that, and we want to welcome them into our congregation, you are just now beginning your commitment to them. I feel like we rejoice when somebody comes into membership and say, hope you find some friends. Hope you survive in the valley. Let me know if you need a meal when you're pregnant. You know what I mean? Let's be honest. Congregationalism doesn't mean we just make a vote. That's where it begins. Congregationalism means we have a radical commitment to the person we just received. Whether, whether they're our type of person or not. Right? So, how are we going to address that? Well, we're going to address that in, in months and years to come. It's a slow process. We've got to become congregational slowly. But this is, this is Baptist church polity. Which I believe is Bible church polity. Or else I'd be part of a different denomination. And we can get to heaven and we can discuss with all the other denominations who truly accepted Christ by faith in Jesus alone. Like we could, hey, what, Jesus, who got it right? And we, maybe he won't even care. I don't know. But we, we can find out. But until then, we're going to just follow what we feel convinced of in Scripture. And doesn't make us better than anybody. And so, at the end of the day, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? It's not that Baptists believe in biblical soul authority that makes them Baptist. Because a lot of other Christians who aren't Baptists believe in biblical soul authority. It's not individual soul liberty that makes us Baptist. Because a lot of other people who aren't Baptists believe in individual soul liberty. It's not priesthood of believer. It's not really that acrostic necessarily, though we believe in all those things and their convictions. It's the fact that we believe in meaningful membership uniquely, creed or believer's baptism, and congregationalism. Historically, that's what made Baptist Baptist, and that's what makes us Baptist today. Other than those things, we're just Bible believers. We are Bible believers. We are govern our church like Baptist. 
and we live our lives like the Bible tells us to live our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen.